the first Beatle to grace the place was Ringo. Yeah. So I was like, oh my God, it's Ringo. You know, so I was, uh, he was my favorite Beatle. Oops. <laughs> Growing up. Oops. Um, yeah, I know. I was. He's a lovable guy. <laughs> I know. And, and it was, it was not the right thing for me to say when John asked me that question. <laughs> that was not the good thing to say. My first guest is Ruth McCartney. She's an internet, digital, and new media entrepreneur. She's the CEO of McCartney Multimedia, co-founder of fan management software company iFans, and president of ConnectCo.mobi. She's also the stepsister of Paul McCartney and Mike McGear. My second guest is Miss May Peng. In 1973, she accompanied John Lennon to Los Angeles to promote mind games and thus began an 18-month relationship, which John affectionately and publicly referred to as his lost weekend. So my first question is, how, do you, how did you two meet one another? Or do you remember the first time you met? God, I don't remember, actually, because when you're part of that family, you just get embraced into the family. So sure. all of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, Ruth, Angie, and, and then there's Mike, and then there's, you know, there's Paul. And so it's, everybody gets mixed into it. I mean, I don't even remember the first time I met Louise Harrison yeah. or, or any of those. But I do remember when I met the guys, but not the actual, you know, the other, the other the other Beatles, like George and Ringo and whatever, but not the family, yeah, the like, extended family. Likewise. I mean, I, I don't know. Gosh, years. 74, I would have been 14. So, you know, later on. Yeah. Because Cynthia was around, and, yeah. you know, she, she's, she was a close friend of both of us, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I knew Patty, I knew Maureen. So it's, you know, when you're, when you're part of the family, you, you just get thrown in there. When yeah. did you meet? I don't know. But I you could ask me when I met the guys, but not, not everybody else. <laughs> so I knew a little. I've done, I've done a little bit of research here. And uh, my most important question will be to you, Ruth. And we, we can get it out of the way now. Did Paul actually touch the orange in the lunchbox or not? You never... <laughs> you never say. <laughs> you have done your research. I did yes. my research. Well, yeah, when I went to school growing up, you know, I was born in 1960 and my mom, Angie, married Jim McCartney, my dad, who would have been 119 in July. Wow. Um, he's born the same day as Ringo, so I had a birthday a little bit ago. And um, he and my mom got married and he adopted me and I became McCartney. So I went to the local village school, of course, in Heswell in the Wirral. And kids used to, kids older than me, used to try and break into my lunchbox and steal my cheese sandwiches. And so, oh, my God, she's got an orange in his Paul touched this orange. <laughs> Just ridiculous stuff. So uh, Paul had probably touched the orange or put the banana in the lunchbox, but who knows, you know, it's just <laughs> kids, are, kids are crazy. And um, on, the, on my first day at school, actually, the, the headmaster called all the kids in about an hour before I got there. I was told to come late or my mom was told to bring me late. And he said, now, what we don't want you to do is pay special attention to this kid. You're not to pull her hair. You're not to steal the tags, the name tags out of her clothes. You're not to steal her books with their names. He basically gave them a list of what happened to me for the next five years. Well, you the tell English, a bunch of English eight, kids are so proper. They would never, they'd listen, right? Uh, mm, you tell a bunch of eight to 
12-year-olds what they're not supposed to do to the new student that's coming in an hour. Guess what happens? Yeah. <laughs> it knocked the edges off me. I'm all right. Oh, Look so at you good. now. Look at you now. Um, so I, I, uh, was an art dealer. I do a lot of memorabilia now, but I was an art dealer when I, for years. And so your Andy Warhol connection may is neat. Uh, you, you did meet him at one point. Oh, I've met him on and off several times. Um, throughout the, the, in New York, you, when you're part of the scene or you, or you go to those places, you meet all, it was like a click. Yeah. Oh, it's Andy's place. Oh, oh, this person, you know, so it, it, you know, first time is more exciting. And then afterwards it's go, Oh yeah, it's Andy. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Factory. Oh, all He's right. Such a neat um, guy. I mean, he was, I would imagine. And you're pre Basquiat though. Did, did you meet Basquiat in later years? Oh, or? oh yes. Believe it or not. I did not realize I met Basquiat. Here's going to be a good one. All so right. There's, and There's Keith a good Herring, too, just so I don't forget, because Keith Herring is like... I did meet Keith Herring, not knowing that it was Keith Herring, in L.A. Okay. But I was, I was, um, and somebody made fun of his name, and I was like this, sitting at the table going, Keith, you know, Keith Herring, but he was going, is it a Herring? And, you know, and I'm like, oh, no, please. This is too embarrassing. <laughs> Leave him alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, a friend of mine who I've known for eons. He was a fan of, of John's and he found a way to get to our apartment in New York. Well, anyway, he was a 14 year old kid back then. He went to high school, you know, he from Brooklyn. Sure. And, and he would say to me, you know, um, this kid, he brought him over to the apartment. And I said, did I ever meet him? I says, I think you have. Cause he used to bring lots of people and he, come over and but at that point he was over at his friend's house my friend's house Mario and he's you know he said to the to Mario you know you need to spruce up your place a little bit I want to paint your door so he goes okay I'm gonna paint the door a little while later you know I don't know how much later but father his father Mario's father comes in he goes I don't like this door and he painted over it. Then, of oh. course, his one of his good friends was Basquiat. Oh, jeez. Oh, oh yeah, I, yeah. I know. I know. That was his. That was the whole thing. It was. He was a schoolmate of his. Wow. Oh my god. That's like painting over. That's like cleaning. I'm going to clean up this wall because it's got some stupid girl holding a balloon. What's a Banksy? Oh, yeah, who's yeah, just like the Banksy <laughs> stuff now. So you know, where's the door? Is it still there? Because we could probably do some extra. No, I know. I thought no, no, it's gone. It's gone. Bummer. Yeah, when he told me that, I was like, oh, I choked. I choked. I, so there's I, an artist named Raymond Pettibone. He did all the uh, Black Flag album covers, the Foo Fighters, Hard, uh, Sonic Youth, the two people in the car. I'm a uh, fan. And so he was, he, I think he was down a bit on money. I don't know, but he, he painted a rooster, uh, like in a little carnival thing at Chuck E. Cheese's. That's a pizza place for children. And yes, so I know that place. Yes. I took a ride with my friend to see if, if they still had the Pettibone rooster inside of the Chuck E. Cheese. And you should have seen the looks on these people's faces because you're looking for what? You used to have a rooster <laughs> and it was painted by a guy you know, and these kids are, their kids working there. And, and then the looks on their faces of what are you talking about? Was it still there? 
no, it was gone. They don't have anything like that now. It's all arcade machines. Well, it's so. again, it's it's like my friend's door. You know, the the boss had, you know, I'm sure they go, oh, all right, next, let's throw this this garbage right out. You know, it's the you same. Know, enough, I didn't understand. There's a lot of artists like this, but I didn't understand his art until I saw it in person. And then when I saw it in person, I went, oh wow. You know, Jackson Pollock is an oh wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, just, here's a, here's another where I used to live. Yeah, uh, up in Rockland County, which is about forty miles north northwest of the city. Um, I I met this musician, John uh, Pousset Dart. Well, little did I know, I you know I found out about his father. Um, I, I think his uh, father's name is Richard. Well. His, his, he's an artist and Jackson Pollock was emulating him. Oh, cool. And, and, and here's the best one. So I went over to John's house, you know, and his family for and all these original paintings because his father is, is, is gone, but you know, all his stuff is just laying about. And the last year and months before, um, uh, President Obama was leaving, they were allowed to, you know, for, one of the rooms in, in the White House, they pick out for their art, you know, what they can put into that room. It's a permanent art room. Oh. They chose one of his art pieces. Oh, fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. I was so excited for my girlfriend who's married to uh, John and she says, oh my God, oh, we just you know, got a piece that's just went into that, uh, into the White House. It's a permanent art room, you know, wherever that room is. Yeah. I, I actually am one of the, um, in development McCartney Studios projects I'm working on is called Art and the Beatles because they're all very arty farty. And in fact, the one, the one and only painting that they ever created together was in a hotel room in Tokyo. And, um, there was some delay and they couldn't, I don't know, visas were not right or whatever. And Mal Evans, the roadie went out and got them a big canvas and a bunch of paints and what have you. And there are a few surviving photographs and it still belongs as we understand it to the granddaughter of the then Beatles Japanese fan club. It's the one and only piece they've created together. Yeah. So they drew on it. It's not just signed. It's, it's actual. Oh no, there's, they, they're, it's an oil painting. They were locked in a hotel room for two days and there's, there's pictures of four of them sitting around opposite sides of the table, just painting. How neat. I have to check that out. That's something yeah. cool. So That's I'm, something I'm, to, to look I'm, into. I'm scripting a documentary about it. If I could just find the damn thing, that would be great. My one is I have uh, I have uh, the original handwritten sheet music to Pink Floyd, The Wall. <gasps> so, yeah, it's going to oh, go on that museum amazing. tour. It's going to go on that Vogue, uh, the Vogue Museum in L.A. And inside, I didn't know I had it. I talked about it on another one here with uh, a, a journalist. And it's all of Michael Kamen's uh, writing. So it's 177 oh. pages of Michael Kamen's writing. And I love Michael Kamen. He was wonderful. He was wonderful. You met him? Yeah, I knew him. Yeah. Oh, tell me, what was he like? This I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, you, I don't read music. So you, sometimes you can, I guess it's the same, the Beatles connection to things where, you know, I touch their orange or stuff. I've never been that guy. I, I've never asked anybody for a signature in my life, but um when you're looking through the sheet music, there, there's like coffee stains and stuff. And what I see is just so much work. I mean, I can't believe you wrote all this. And brain power well, and inspiration. You know, Amazing, yeah, right? Exactly. Especially with like the eraser marks. What did you change? How, how come you changed that note to this note? Mm-hmm. And what would it have sounded like if you didn't? <laughs> yeah, what was Michael like, mate? Michael was a, a, a very 
you know, he was unassuming. He was just a lovely, you know, just a nice, pure soul. Um, and he just loved doing music. He just loved doing all that. And he was, he was part of the New York rock and roll ensemble. And that's where, uh, he came from. And, and, you know, he, he was just always around doing, uh, the last time I had seen him, he was, it was at the, um, 2000, what's it, is it, is it 2002 Olympics in Park, in Park in Utah. City? Yes, the Winter Olympics. Yeah. Right. So I was there and he was there and he was doing something with, I guess, the, the, the people to sing. And, you know, I was actually in the uh, Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Amazing. Oh, cool. It is an amazing. Oh, my God. It's just amazing to see. And he was writing out music and he was doing all sorts of things. And but it was not long before, after that was when he got very ill. But I'm just saying yeah. he was just amazing. It was what? good to see. I saw him on and off in New York. A lot, you know, during in those early days in the, uh, you know, the, what was it, early 70s and, you know, late 60s, early 70s, you know, around. But what a lot. I always I think of people like him and, and John and Paul and, you know, you, there's, there's can't, well, not countless others, but there are some Billy Joel, Beethoven. Well, even and, my ex-husband. Which yeah, Tony Visconti, sure. Right. Uh, I, mean, I have a lot of his notes. They're like, um, they're like tuning forks and they tune into the universe and they, they're sort of like, they're like human satellite dishes, the way I look at it. And yeah. they, they, they just have to be in the right place at the right time. And there's a spark of inspiration. There's a white feather that falls or there's a strike of lightning or there's a raindrop or there's something and boom, that channel gets opened up and it comes in. I'm um, not to take anything away from their genius. They do. No, absolutely yeah. not. I mean, you know, you know, I'm sure you do, Ruth, you know that. Tony actually did all the orchestral arrangements for Ben on the Run. Yes. Oh, oh absolutely. He did, he did that in 48 hours. Amazing. Paul, yeah. Paul came to him. And at the time, uh, Tony was married to, to Mary Hopkin. And right. so he goes, he goes, I, I understand, you know, you could do orchestral arrangements. And he's, so Tony says, yeah, I can. You know, at that point he had had, he had done a lot of things from, Bowling, you know, T-Rex and all that stuff yeah. and to, to yeah. Bowie and he goes, yeah, he goes, well, I've got something I, I want. I got, you know, a project for you. Yeah. And he said, okay. So he said, here. So he gives him a cassette back in the day sure. and he goes, I need orchestra. I'm just giving you all the places I need the orchestral arrangements. And he's listening to this. So there are chunks of the music that's missing, obviously, because yeah. he's only giving him the places where he wants the music. Yeah. So he goes, I didn't even know if what I was creating would come in right and go out right. And it was just one of those. So he says, when do you need it? He goes, um, Wednesday. Yeah. You know, like yesterday type of thing. And he goes, Oh my God. He goes, I booked the studio and since in two days. So he had only 48 hours to do the whole album. No pressure. So, so, um, of course, you know, Tony actually conducted the whole thing and, and on the spot, that's where you were saying, why did they erase it? Because it doesn't sound right as it it's doesn't going. doesn't sound, yeah. I just want to, yeah. just want to know the different things. Yeah. But you know, really? because he didn't have the full song. He yeah. couldn't, you know, he had to do it on the spot. So it was fill just, in the blanks. Yeah. You know, well, as I've blanks. understood it, you know, trying to piece the, the pieces together so 
Cayman was working in New York while they were recording in London. And I guess he was sending the stuff forward to them. I don't know. But I, I found out because of the museum thing, I had to do another insurance deal on it. So I had to look through it all. And I have yeah. all of Bob Ezrin's sheet music in there. Oh, oh I love Bob. He was so great. do I. Bob is great. He used to be in the studio. Who was he working with at the time? Ezrin was funny. He would, you know, come hey, in. I knew him through David Cassidy. David oh, Cassidy introduced me to Bob to- Ezrin. Yeah. I'm trying to remember who he was working with in the studios in New York. And he one day came in, he goes, John, can I borrow your limo? Well, of course, why? He goes, you know, I want to go out for, for a drink or for a meal. And, uh, and he was taking, um, Julia, uh, oh God, it's an English actress, Julia, uh, um, oh no, Juliet. No, not Juliet. It was Julie. Julie oh, Harris? Oh, I don't my. know my TV Julie stuff. Chris- was it Julie Christie or somebody like Julie that? Christie, Julie Harris? Wow. No, not Harris. It might be Julie Christie. So I was like, oh my God. This <laughs> is just weird. Yeah, yeah, David Cassidy introduced me to Bob Ezrin um, years and years ago. He was, I guess he was doing something with him and then David's wife at the time, Sue Schifrin, was a songwriter and she knew Bob from way back when. You know what? The world, the music business world is at, at a certain level. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a small, you know, it's, it's sort of. It all goes back to Ozzy. It's, yeah. <laughs> well, Ozzy, I, I used to work for Ozzy Osbourne. I, I know, was, I know you did. <laughs> I was the receptionist at Jet Records for Sharon's father, Don Ogden. Yes, Don. Oh. And, um, I was answering one of those old, like, one ringy dingy, two ringy dingy actual phones, you know, with wires that went into the wall for those of you who were too young to know that phones <laughs> used to be hardwired things. And we had line one, two, three, four, I don't know, 10 lines or something. And I used to get calls from, I'd get Aussie stoned or drunk or angry out of his gourd on line one. It was wanting all of the speak, above. Wanting to speak all of the above. Of but the he was, he was the sweetest bloke, is the sweetest bloke. He was, Aussie's a real gentleman. I mean, he would, I'm the receptionist and he would hold the door open for me to go to the bathroom or pull your chair out in a restaurant. He was raised right. And, yeah. um, yeah. Then on line two, it'd be Graham Russell from Air Supply, you know, oh, hello. And then Tony Iommi would walk in to get petty cash. to get, you know, And I would be like, what is my life? I've got, you know, the Antichrist sitting in reception. I've got all out of love on line two and, and the bat eater on line one. What the hell am I doing here for minimum wage? But it was a fun job, I tell you. So you did not <laughs> work. Were. You worked for Sharon later or you did not work? For Sharon ever. Oh no, well, but Sharon and, and Don were actually part and parcel of Jet Records. Sharon was a manager and she shared offices with Jet. We were on Sunset above, um, La Dome, actually the, the famous La Dome restaurant. And then they closed that office and moved up above, uh, Sunset Plaza. Um, Don and his then girlfriend, later wife Meredith bought a big house and they built kind of a ranch house next to it. And that's where our offices were. And that was where I was on the day that um, Ozzy bit the head off the dove at CBS oh, Records. <laughs> and he did it twice. He, did, he came home and did it for the benefit of the office staff and spit it in my bin. It was lovely. <laughs> and I immediately picked up line one and called the doctor for a tetanus shot. <laughs> well, third time's the charm. I'll give him a ring and we'll see if we can get him out. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ozzy's, Ozzy's a gentleman. He's an absolute sweetheart. Uh, was, I did some shows with them and... I like both Sharon and Ozzy, so uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And Jack was a little dude cruising around on his little on his scooter thing. He would cruise around the backstage. He was such a nice kid. 
It was good. Jack and Kelly weren't even born when I was around, but when I started with that whole. I was going to say, yeah, they weren't born when I when I knew them either. So no, it was it was an odd roster though. The the Jet Records had um, Tony Iommi, Black Sabbath, Ozzy, and Air Supply. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I like to know. I haven't seen Graham in a while. I wonder how he's doing. They're doing. He and Russell are doing great. They're touring out here. They're doing all the packing the Canyon clubs and stuff. They're quite the songwriters. I know because I helped give them one of the songs when I was doing publishing. Um, Yeah, one of the uh, I think it was um, too many people. What was it? Something many people in the world. I was working for United Artists and uh, two less lonely people in the world. Two less lonely, right? With the Kenny Supply. Did you ever work with Jim Steinman? No, didn't. I did not. No. I did not. Just passed. It's unfortunate. He wrote some great stuff. Yeah, sure Fantastic did. Bat out of hell. There you go. Talk about bats. We could. Oh, there we go. We're back on the bats. So uh, just a couple fill in the blanks things. So you, May, you're working for Alan Klein at Abco Records. And then you went with a friend to Apple, like on a lunch break? No, here's what it is. Okay. Now, this is how it worked. Uh, I I went on a lunch break because I was looking for a job. And Alan Klein had just acquired Apple Records. And my and my girlfriend saw Apple Records. And I said, you got to be kidding me, in this building? So I decided to go up. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to go ask for a job. What could they tell me? If they said no, I'm no worse off than where I am at the moment, right? I didn't so where a- were you working, though, at the time? When I wasn't. Were- I just I quit school. I quit college. I said, I'm out of here. I don't like college. What were you studying? Um. I was doing so. What was I studying? Retail marketing, actually. Oh That's yeah, music's way cooler. Yeah. So, <laughs> no uh, offense. Always, no you offense. Know, <laughs> you know, right. So I had no idea, and I hated doing. I spent a year. I went to psychology. I went the whole thing, business law. That was actually interesting. Business law and psychology were my favorite. Everything else, calculus, and I said, "Do I really need calculus?" As I, so you're just like a you know, young person trying to figure out what you want to do. Right. So. After the, by the second year, I'm going, I really don't like being, so as, as I go to the, to the head of the line, as we're supposed to be signing in, I look at the woman and I said, how do I get out of here? And she looked at me with this weird look on her face. And I said, she goes, what? I said, I don't want to be in school anymore. Just tell me, how do I get out of here? <laughs> go in the music industry. They're very uneducated. <laughs> so just, yeah, I go to the bursts and I, now I was afraid to tell my mother. So, you know, that I just quit school. So so she actually took it well. She goes, you got a mouth, you can speak English, use it. So and she's told me that. I said, okay. So in those days, they have those agencies where they would send you somewhere to for a job. And of course, I had no um, skills whatsoever, not even typing, nothing, because I took academic courses. So uh, they said, what could you? I said, well, I can answer phones. I could be a receptionist. And they sent me to a Japanese place, a Jap- Japanese bicycle place. And it happened to be in that building. And I knew after I left the um, the interview that I wouldn't get the job because Japanese and Chinese just don't really um, yeah. back then. So uh, I came and I went upstairs and I, I asked the woman, I said, do you have any openings? She goes, uh, no. And I said, oh, and I'm like this in the, in the, in the lob, you know, in the foyer. And I'm like this, and she's looking at me. And she goes, can I help you with something else? I said, well, do the Beatles ever come through here? And she said, no, no, no. 
And I said, okay. And just at that moment, and this is something that you said, Ruth, is at the right time, wherever the angels had put me, just at that moment, both uh, both doors, all of a sudden people were just coming out of the, of the, uh, into the, into the foyer, going to the elevator. And I'm like, like, what just happened? You know, everybody running out and the woman behind the desk, which I later found out it was relieving somebody else for a few minutes. She happened to just yell out saying, listen, this girl's looking for a job. Is there any openings? Oh, and this cool. guy turned around and said, come back after lunch. And I said, okay. And I, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, had no idea. So I came back, I waited for about almost an hour and a half, two hours, because I wasn't sure what the lunch hour was. And I came back and they, they kept saying, do you know how to do this? I said, yes. Do you know how to do that? Yes. Sure. Yeah, sure. And, I can um, do it in Chinese. I'm from New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the whole thing was that what I did do was, he goes, well, then you could start next week. I was thrilled. And from that moment, though, I taught myself every single thing. I wanted to learn everything. I was just like a sponge because I said, I'm not going to let anybody down. I'm, I'm just going to, I learned telex. I hated telex. Yeah, me too. You got to start from the beginning. Punch the wrong hole. It, it says something Hold completely on. different on the other end. <laughs> I know. So how did you find yourself with John and Yoko? Was there, did you initially well, work on the phones and stuff? And then. And I worked, no, I worked in the royalties department. And, oh. uh, but, but there was such a turnover of people. Then they would say, we need somebody on the phones. Could you go out there and help that girl out or whoever it was? And I said, sure. And what it was is because um, Alan Klein's office uh, was just starting with Apple. They was just getting together, but he also at that time managed the Rolling Stones. That's oh, right. cool. So, so all that was happening because it was coming. Right. And then you have these guys over here. So he actually at that point had John, George and Ringo as managing them and Apple publishing. So that meant all the acts that was on Apple publishing, which is Badfinger, uh, right. All of them. So that it's that whole lot. Then you have the Rolling Stones. Now, the best part, because I ended up in music publishing, which is my favorite. I couldn't have asked for a better spot to be in. Uh, he had all the APCO Cameo Parkway music, all those records, which was, I grew up in the 60s, you know, D.D. Sharp and, you know, Question Mark and the Mysterians. So all that publishing. Then we had the CAGS music catalog, which is all Sam Cooke. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah then, we, then we all had all the, um, right. Then we had all the Rolling Stones immediate record and, and all that stuff going. So I learned from the best, uh, yeah. you know, not knowing because I was, was always interested, but looking at this catalog was like amazing. So Apple, Rolling Stones, uh, Sam Cooke, Cameo Parkway. That's my training. From all from all the songs, and I was always interested in who wrote the songs, what you know, all the people that were involved. So that's where I ended up, and so that's how it started. And so John and Yoko would call up if one time I needed to to be uh, Alan's secretary. They said Alan needs somebody over at his desk. I said, oh. I was working on one end, so I would go. I was like the you know, what do they call it? They they go, go Friday. Yeah, the girl Friday to go to everybody's desk till they find somebody. So I remember John calling up and he goes, Hello, want to speak to Alan? 
distinct voice. You know who it is. You don't oh, have to ask me to go, who's this? You know, yeah, yeah. Is it okay. And it was one of those days. And I remembered saying, um, Mr. Klein, um, John, John and Yoko are on the line. And he goes, tell him I'm not here. Oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> to, which, to which I would have said, he says he's not here. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, he knew because I said, um, Alan's not here. And he goes, no, yeah, right. <laughs> sorry. And that's what he would yeah. say, you know, he'd be, he goes, uh, he goes, he's avoiding us. That's what I would hear. And they, you know, and they go. So you think that they took you uh, to work with them as assistant, I guess would be, as their assistant? Well, yeah, well, the whole around? thing is that until they arrived, the first Beatle that ever came into that office was months later. I, I mean, I started very, oh, a lot of people don't know this, but when I started working there shortly after started working, the rumors of Paul is dead started happening. Oh, God, that was awful. Yeah. Wow. Well, guess who they called and who? guess who ended up speaking to the person like trying to get through me. Mm. <laughs> I was the actual person they ended up with speaking like the radio station. Wow. And I'm going, cause nobody wanted to talk to them. They say, you deal with it. Yeah. And you're 20 and going, years old, basically. You're 22, I think. Me? At that time, I was only 19. 19. <laughs> you're the one in charge of the PR. <laughs> because the real, the person that was in charge, of, nobody wanted to deal with it. They said, yeah. you deal with it. I'm sitting there going, what? What am I supposed to say? But they asked me a question and they said, well, you know, did you, I said, we had heard no rumors of that. And at the time it's true. We said, we don't, we don't know anything about that. And of course, obviously it just blew up from there. So that's my training. So you're asking. So as you um, did go to college after all, I did, I did the music. Exactly. So the first Beatle was Ringo. Then George Harrison came into town later, Badfinger and Jackie Lomax. John and Yoko came in at the end of, towards the end of 70, where they were coming in to make uh, two films, Up Your Legs Forever and uh, and Fly. And they needed people to work with them. And all of a sudden at my desk, I got this call and said, you need to work with them. I was happy to get out of the office oh, yeah you know and that was it and I was a and I could wear my jeans and the rest <laughs> you know, is history oh. right yeah so that did was you like, like working on the films rather than the music stuff or I it's a, it was different I could only say it's different it's not it's apples and oranges at that point because where I was was very as much as it was music it was more clerical work and understanding it whereas this was a little more creative and watching the process of getting flies in the dead of winter or um getting I people picture, to I just picture you sitting there one day going like this is bullshit I want to listen to Sam Cooke again <laughs> yeah, I, <know. laughs> I did not sign up for this <laughs> that would be me yeah we yeah. need you to run naked through the streets of New York it's a, for a movie <laughs> yeah I know and it was up your legs forever and we're going anybody want to show their their toes to their thighs and we're somebody says is John Lennon really up there? Is he, yeah. And they go, okay. And they come up and, you know, they, they sign up because we were trying to get 365 pairs of legs, you know, and, and it was just like, oh my God, you know, I was, it was, it, so it was quite interesting at that point in time to, yeah. to do all these different things and catching flies, like I said, in the den of winter, 
was where was where was TikTok? Where was TikTok when you needed it? Right? Exactly. That would have been it. Would have been a fun time. I'm telling yeah. you. Well, it's exciting though, especially when you're young. And you go experience all these different avenues. Maybe you would have loved film, so it's nice to switch things up because you're still young. You can keep switching. You can keep going right. back and forth. Right, things. and that was the first time. And I was saying, oh, I wanted to be in the business, but I didn't realize I was going to be doing all of this stuff. And right. I did get, you know. This is where you get your credits and you get to work on something that nobody else is going to be doing, you know? Sure. So, and that was really um, what it was all about. And it was just quite interesting at that, at that moment in time. It really okay. was. And what about you, Ruth? So you, I know you were a performer, you, you were a singer and you're a dancer. And mm-hmm. um, what made you want to pursue the arts as well was, was was your father how did if you don't mind me asking so how how did your father pass away so my father was some soldiers as my mother likes to say um my father was a guy called frank clark from north wales um my mother's marriage angie's first marriage to her husband eddie williams was on the rocks she was told that she was going to die in childbirth of kidney disease and she and her husband who were separating he said well I know it's not my baby because Frank Clark was my father. Um, I'm having an affair with our next door neighbor called Ruth. If you die, why don't you call the baby Ruth and I will bring her up as my own, even though she's not mine. And all will know the the Irish Catholic proper family will never know the difference because she'll be called Ruth and her mother will be Ruth. Well, um, she didn't die in childbirth and he got killed in a car crash. So there she is with a child named after the woman that was having an affair with her now dead husband. And um, my real father came into the hospital to see me about two days after I was born and announced to Angie, to my mom, well, um, you know, it's been nice, but I've just accepted an army post in Australia. See ya. So he buggers off. So now there she is. Um, Her husband has died. Her house was uh, tied to his job. So after two weeks, two weeks after his funeral, the uh, concrete utilities company of Liverpool came around with an eviction notice and evicted her and me. So we went to live with my grandmother and we went after 30 different flats in Liverpool and they said no children. And finally, a wonderful woman called um, Battling Bessie, she was called MP, Member of Parliament Bessie Braddock, wrote uh, a letter to the Liverpool city council and said, this is discrimination. This is bullshit. This woman is a working woman. She's a secretary. She's got a two year old kid. She needs a flat. Give her the keys to a flat. So we had a flat fast forward another couple of years. Um, my mom used to play Angie's to, she was, uh, she still is um, great Britain's youngest ever um, certified piano teacher. She got her teaching certificate five days before her 13th birthday. So at 12, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's actually in the other room writing her fourth book. She's 91. And, um, so she gets, goes out and plays piano in pubs. Is it about TikTok? Uh, yeah, no, she's actually joining TikTok for something else I'll tell you about. Off, off, <laughs> okay, yeah. all right, all right. Yes, well, we'll come back and do, hopefully do another one of these about that. Sure. Um, she's launching some NFTs as well in, in the same platform that May is. And um, so she gets into, she's playing piano all over the place, meets a lovely couple called Mike and Bette Robbins. 
Fast forward another couple of years to 1964, my mom's sister, Auntie Joan, who had the same exact, when, when May says, you know, John's voice is recognizable on the phone, so is Julian's. Um, my mom and her sister had the same exact voice pattern. This guy, Mike, comes into a shop in, in Liverpool and says, oh, I'm late for a funeral. I need directions, blah, blah, blah. Where? And my Auntie Joan answers him. He says, wait, are you Angela? And she said, no, but I have a sister called Angela. And he said, does she have a little daughter called Ruth? And she said, yes. He said, oh, my God. I have a, is, is she, is she married? Is she a widow? What's going on? And he did the matchmaking between my mom and Jim McCartney. That was August. They met in August. They met five more times and they got married in the November of 1964 and January of 65, February, January, February was their honeymoon in the Bahamas on the set of help. So that's how I got thrown into the whole fetal world. Crazy. It is crazy. So, and he was older than <laughs> your mom crazy. was. So, as, as you're an adult, is it odd to you that there, that they, I mean, I, I listened to an interview she did and she had said that he, she could move in to help him with the house or she yeah. could marry him, <laughs> but what? she didn't want to just move in to help with the house and not be married. And so right. that was the route she took, but he was, 30 years her senior, is it? Or? Uh, yeah, 28 years older. Um, like Paul is now 28 years older than Nancy. It's funny how history repeats itself. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, they, they, it was definitely at the beginning, it was an arranged kind of uh, marriage, if you will. He needed help around the house and she didn't want me to go to the local little tiny village school of, oh, well, in Liverpool, they say they're living over the brush. You know, she's she's shameless hussy. She's living with them. They're not even married. I mean, it was the 60s. This is, you know, 60 yeah, years yeah. ago, for God's sake. Yeah. And so she said, well, with a young, if it was just me, I'd be a living housekeeper. But I've got a little girl, and she's going to have to deal with all the gossip in school, plus the Beatle thing, plus the scrutiny of the press hanging outside and the groupies and the fans and what have you. Um and so they got married and they tied the knot and it really became, he was only, he would only live 12 and a half years. Um, he died when I was 16. He died in my arms. God bless. Um, but it really truly became a love story. It was a really sort of interesting Romeo and Juliet. They were thrown together out of loneliness and necessity and they learned to kind of deal with each other's differences and foibles, but they were just such a really fabulous couple. <laughs> they were just You're 16. You know, like, I mean, that's a, uh... yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're ready to go see the world at 16. You think you know everything in the world. I think there is to know. Yeah. <laughs> so your you're father, ten feet and bulletproof, right? Right. You're tough as nails. So your father passes away. I assume you had a pretty good relationship with him. Yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so what did you do? Did you decide you wanted to go to school or did you, you went down the road of um, music or? Oh. No. So I, um, I went <laughs> I went to Tunisia and learned to ride a camel because I thought that would suit me well. Um, and I had been uh, accepted. In, <laughs> my aunt, my mom's sister, the late my late Aunt May, um, was a ballerina. My mother's other sister, Joan, was a um, championship British ballroom dancer. And Ange was a piano player. So I had the sort of, from the non-McCartney side, I had, you know, um, the, the artistic talent. And I was, you know, I was okay at piano and I was okay at guitar. And so I decided to go into choreography. So at 16, I started my own business called Ruth McCartney and Talent. And we, I auditioned tons and tons, sort of like, so you think you can dance. I auditioned lots of dancers and I put together, similar to the Blue Man group, I put together different troops called Talent. 
all over the place. And we, our first client was Gimbal's, which is now Macy's. Uh, oh, and sure. we, we, I choreographed when I was about, yeah, I was 16, just, um, runway fashion shows for Gimbal's that where we did sort of the glam rock and the dancing and the glittery makeup and the big hair and business suits and, you know, so Gimbals, like, I, called my, I called my mom because I heard the Gimbals one in another and she's like, that wasn't in London. There's no, no New York. It was yeah. Macy's. Yeah. Gimbals. I don't got, know that. And Macy's bought them out eventually. Yeah. And all the Gimbal stores became Macy's like Bloomingdale's became uh, Dillard's became Bloomingdale's or whatever. Anyway. So they were my first client when I was 16 and we had troops traveling all over the place doing uh, avant-garde fashion shows. Cause in those days, Fashion yeah. models were like, they were supposed to be like coat hangers and glide and not get in the way of the clothes. And I thought, well, screw that. I'm just going to disrupt that whole idea. We're going to play Slade and the Glitter Band and Mud and Susie Quattro. And we're just going to rock out in business clothes. And it, you know, it, it, it hit the papers because it was just outrageously, you know, offensive. Was there a- <laughs> and so that's, I just literally went into business. I went into business for myself at 16 and I never looked back. I'm 61. Turn that, turn that around. And I'm, I'm still, uh, self-employed. Well, you're, I've uh, looked, you work your butt off. There's a lot you always got going on. You keep the, uh, the hamster in your head moving quickly. I think That's there's a lot going on. It's good. It, it drinks too much coffee, that hamster. So <laughs> was there, was there music that you guys liked that either Paul or John were like, ugh. <laughs> you know, not again. Can how many times are you going to listen to that record? <laughs> well, for, for, yeah, in my in our house, it was I think I love you by David Cassidy and the Partridge Family. He's like no more. <laughs> yeah, he's like I think. Does he know he loves you yet? <laughs> no, John was different. I mean, you know, he loved. Music. He loved David Cassidy. He played it all the time too. <laughs> we after we met him, it was like one another story. But yeah, he would listen to everybody's music. I mean, I think we heard a lot of Bowie's for like a lot of times. And it was like, we got to move on, you know? But um, at our house, he was always listening. He was always open to new music. So he would get his inspiration, you know? That's good. And Paul, Paul played a lot of different people's music um, in yeah. our house, obviously. And he grew up with, you know, 20s jazz, razzmatazz, big band. My dad yeah. had Jim Max band when he was... Um, 18 or 19, he wrote a song, an instrumental called Walking in the Park with Eloise, which then Paul later recorded in the 70s in Nashville with Chet Atkins and Floyd Kramer under a, uh, yeah, under a pseudonym, The Country Hams. And it was featured in the only film to feature both Paul and Jim McCartney music is an animated, um, an adult animated graphical novel called Ethel and Ernest. And it is the most charming, beautiful film. Mm. Um, and we went to the, the premiere here in LA a couple of years ago. And, uh, yeah, my, da- my dad's uh, music is playing in the movie as they, Ethel and Ernest cartoon characters are walking into a date in a movie theater and they had a poster drawn Jim Max band, which was really, really cute. So, oh, so, um, I should know and I kind of know, but, um, can you explain to me what an NFT is? Because uh, I, I just uh, I'm going to I'm going to give this one to Ruth. Come on, Ruth. All I know what it stands for these days. I finally got. I know what it that. stands for, and I think but I, I don't because know the really. one thing I'm on the fence and not understanding. So I want to buy one of May's photographs, okay. and I'm going to do it because uh, you have NFTs. So yeah. my question is. Do I have a part of the copyright of that photograph because of the? Okay, so what I'm buying is 
what? <laughs> a digital print. A digital print. So it's a digital collectible. They're like baseball cards. If baseball cards were digital and lived on your phone or your iPad. May was a huge baseball card collector. <laughs> okay. Yes. Right. So basically, forget the t- the idea of NFT. It just stands for non fungible, i.e., non forgeable, non duplicatable token. The token right. is actually a digital collectible. So. I don't know if you're a gamer, if you play games or whatever, but when you buy, uh, let's say in Fortnite, you buy power-ups or you buy a sword or you buy um, something, you know, when, when you're playing a game and you run out of energy, you buy energy. Those are basically non-fungible tokens. They just live in, in game world, which they call the sure. metaverse, right? Okay. So NFTs, they're just, they're collectibles, but instead of having to have a wall or a frame to hang, knock a nail in and hang them, they simply live on your phone. That's the only difference is that. So if I was, uh, it's like me buying a print and it, it's signed May paying one of 100 or two of 100 or whatever right, you make right. the, the size of. Okay. She owns the copyright. It. You own the right to hang that version on your wall. Then we have to talk maybe after, cause I, I have a lot of Bob Marley photos that have never been released. Wow. And That's nice. That yeah. could be something cool. I, I, re- I got them a couple of years ago. You you knew Bob Marley or you worked with Bob Marley, right, man? I worked, I worked with, um, I worked in Island Records and I worked with his manager at the time. And, uh, Bob, you know, we were, you know, Island was putting out all the, the Bob Marley stuff. And I was meeting, uh, also, this is where I started to learn more about all the, all the reggae stuff and third world. And I mean, I was learning so, so many new groups and their names. And I was finding it all interesting at the same time as that was going on. Brian Eno was coming in with that oh, whole yeah. New York scene. So I was oh, getting it from both ends. And then in between, in between all that, I got Robert Palmer that would come in and he would, you know, it was like, I had three That's different. Exciting. Yeah. It was all the different genres right in front of me. There, it was, again, it was a learning curve for me. I was very lucky because also in the office, was this guy, Gary Kerfurst, and he says, I'm, he works with, you know, obviously with uh, Chris Blackwell, and he got an office space, and he just uh, started managing uh, groups, talking heads, so they used to sit outside in the desk, you know, in the sofa, so yeah, it was like, it's just wow. a, a whole strange world, I mean. And they were the, all nice enough to you? Oh, absolutely, they were all nice, they knew nothing about me, you know, my background with John or anything, it was just as, as, you know, that's one of the threads that we've talked about talking. a lot, you know. People in music are not dickheads. <laughs> They're usually some all them, right. <laughs> some of them, I have to say some of them are. I agree with you, Rob. Yeah, that was the last time I said that on one of these, they went off on how awful Michael Bolton is. And I'm oh like, my God. Why are we, what are we talking about? <laughs> and well, he goes, we talked about it before we came on, and we both agreed we could talk bad about Michael Bolton. And I was like, okay. Funny, <laughs> I, I, I saw Michael years ago when it was in uh it was in london and his manager at the time louis levin was a close friend and so we were trying to reach louis on the line but i that was the last time i saw uh <laughs> i saw him michael bolton and he was at a dinner just happened to dro- drop in at a dinner table that julian was giving you know was giving this dinner mm. so it's kind of funny to see him on the show that the the celebrity dating game it's That's kind funny, of right it is funny because really he's sitting there. I didn't even know there was a show. Oh yeah, he's sitting there, and I don't. He doesn't really smile. 
I don't know what he's, you know, it's like. Maybe he's, maybe he's Scottish by birth. Maybe he's Dewar. Maybe. <laughs> I, I was just sort of I don't know. I, I only met him once. Speaking of Julian, I only met Michael Bolton once at the Sunset Marquee at some small event in that little, um, yeah, that little room down Cavata, there. Cavata restaurant, whatever it's called with the koi fish in the middle of the Sunset Marquee. And, um, he was, you know, he was pleasant enough. I mean, but he was probably on parade for some PR thing. But, you know, I understand when when um, celebrities can be dickish because they just get asked the same questions over and over again. Oh, it's rough, yeah. Um, if you get if you get a celebrity, a film star, especially at the end of a day when they've been sitting forty eight hours in a junket chair with all Did the you see that one with Tom goodness. Cruise where he he got a little pissy and then they blew it out of proportion. The poor guy's been answering the same dumb questions for four days straight. Yeah, right. You, know? you don't right. see and any of those. You see it when he gets hit hard. <laughs> well and also those big stakes, you know, they have so many handlers and so many people. They've got lawyers hovering by, they've got marketing people from the studio, they've got their manager, their publicist, the publicist's assistant, the hair and makeup people going, Oh, you have one hair out of place. They're just they feel like performing monkeys in a zoo. So I get it. You know, when people get cranky after, after stuff, I get it. But for the most part, the music industry is, is one big family, but boy, there are some dickheads out there all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I can, I who, shall rem- who shall remain nameless? Yes. Yeah. I did you want to be a photographer at one point or were you taking these photos just because, you know, you're hanging out and that's what people do? No, I, photography was always, um, when I was growing up, it was another, I just loved the medium. So I used to go out with my, you know, with having a small, from all the different Polaroids to the, to the, um, those little Yashica cameras to, cause I just love taking photographs. And then I got into it more and more and I started taking them. And then when I was with John, he started to see some of my photos and, uh, he would go, Oh, let me see some of those photos. Cause I was just doing it for me for the pleasure. Sure. And he started to like my eye, what I was taking, what I saw of him. So he goes, well, this isn't so he was very critical of his own photos. So you go, this isn't so bad. He goes, Oh, that's a big compliment from an English person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, and the scouts okay. to boot. That's very right. And he said, you know, so in a sense, even though he wouldn't have yelled or anything, but he would have said, don't take any more. I just don't like the way I look. He just said, go carry on. So he let me do whatever, you know? So I, so the pictures I have of him, you know, sleeping, hanging with the cats or doing what, whatever. Eating lunch. (laughs) Yeah. Eating lunch or eating soup, you know, Uh, you know, blowing his nose. It doesn't matter. It's the fact that he allowed me to, uh, he liked, the way I saw him in his natural without, without any fanfare. And well, those are often the best pictures. It's just the things the, the, there's, there's some setups that are pr- nothing against Annie Leibovitz or, uh, you know, the picture of, of John, they, he loved it so much. He actually asked me if he could use it for um, his, uh, the 45 of the imagined single that came out a couple of years behind you know, because Imagine album came out in what seventy one or so, or and the single for Imagine in England didn't come out till seventy five on my birthday, to be exact. Wow. Um, cool. Yeah, and it was my photograph. He says I like the way I look in this picture, and it was because he also wore his Aaron sweater. He loved that sweater, so he's wearing it. So, 
So, so I mean, he, you know, does, yeah. Once, so I, I enter, I had on here John Mann. John worked, has, still was. He worked for Elton John for uh, decades. And so he told me the story of you going to the, I think it's you, who went to the Madison Square Garden show with him. And the way he told it, so what happened, he said, is that he was so nervous about performing. He was vomiting before the show. And uh, do you remember the day of that before the show and everything? Was it because he did I, I, what I would what he said in his story was that he, he didn't want to do it, but he had made a deal. And so Wait a minute, who's that now? Who do, do you? OK, so he's sorry. So uh, John Mayan is uh, my friend and, and John okay. had been with Elton John forever. So he was saying that the, the, the setup was that if Elton John did this song with with John Lennon, that if the song went to number one, John Lennon would then perform live with him, which he had not done since performing with the Beatles. And when he performed live, he was so nervous about oh. doing so that he was vomiting behind the stage. He was just so, but he had made the deal. And so he went out and, and he did a, a song, uh, or I don't know how many songs he did with them. Or, he did uh, three songs. Three songs. Uh, and so you were there for it all. What Was he, was he that nervous or was it just before the incident or was it an all day thing or? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, no, it was, no, it wasn't. It was Thanksgiving day actually right so back in 1974 we had gone we had gone to uh thanksgiving dinner over at i, I think it was um yeah. seymour stein's house and then we you know everybody elton the boys everybody we were there and then we all went home and john is like pacing you know he's getting no- nervous and getting sick and he people don't realize he still was still nervous about that and um and we're backstage at, when we finally get to the backstage he's just Again, he's pacing, smoking a cigarette. He was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? And um, and besides, this was not his band, but they learned every little bit. And we went up to, um, we went up to, to uh, what was it, Boston to see how the show would go, you know, how uh, Elton would sing and, and, you know, what the songs and how everybody sounded. And we went up there and we watched the show at the Boston Gardens, uh, which was a few, I think it was like a, a few days or a week before the, the garden show. And then we only had one rehearsal and they chose the song. So we sang Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which was the song that was put on Elton's album that we went out to Caribou to, um, you know, so that John could sing background on that one. And, and then afterwards uh, we did, Whatever Gets You Through the Night, which was John's single that became number one. And right. then they did, uh, uh, what was it? When was it? 17? Just, uh, just 17, right. Mm-hmm. And John chose that. He goes, uh, he goes, I didn't, I never sang it. It was a Paul song. He goes, you know, and so, so they did that song at the end. So those are wow. the three songs they chose. And, and he would, in fact, at the end of the, of the, of the, at the end of the set, he said, okay, I'm done now. Basically, he said, I'm paraphrasing, he goes, basically done now. I could go home and be sick. So, you know, he was just getting over it, you know. So afterwards, everything kind of, so Barbara Streisand so famous for having terrible stage fright and, um, and other people. And I, you just don't think about it. I, I don't remember working for any bands that I saw have real horrible stage fright. They just seemed to go out and do it like it was regular. So... It's interesting that you think that John Lennon would be There's some freaking out, out all day. Yeah. 
So that's cool. All right. One question, last question possible. Unless you guys want to come up with something else, you're welcome to do so. But so I was going to put together a podcast and my friend's daughter, who's in fifth grade, she said, you need to ask everybody when they first felt famous. So bear in mind, we're talking about a little girl, but to make it a broader idea, when was the first time you felt like you were on the right path or, or maybe you did feel famous or, or something that just felt right, something that clicked. It was a moment of happiness uh, for you. Wow. I, I have to say the minute I got the job um, at APCO, I knew because there was so much hustle. But it was, I did it. I managed, you know, to be in a place where even though there wasn't a lot of, of um, there were no Beatles, there were no nothing, but you just felt the energy. And then of course, in, in 69, even though it wasn't the Beatles, we got the Rolling Stones. So it was like, there was so much going on yeah, every nice. day, even though it was boring to a lot of because it was really a, an office that, that we were just doing uh, clerical work, but the artists started to come in. And, and what was it now? This was 69 when I started in 1970, in the beginning of 70 in February. I'll never forget it. The first Beatle to grace the place was Ringo. Yeah. So I was like, oh my God, it's Ringo. You know, so I was, uh, he was my favorite Beatle. Oops, <laughs> growing up. Oops. Um, yeah, I know. I was. He's a lovable guy. <laughs> I know. And, and it was, it was not the right thing for me to say when John asked me that question. <laughs> he was my Beatle. That was not the good thing to say. But you're truthful. <laughs> I was truthful. After I said it, I went like this. I said, oh, and Ringo was like, you know, I went, oh, why did I say that? And I could see myself going, oh, no. And he goes, and I looked at him and I, and I could see him staring at me. I said, no, 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 but you don't understand. You were my, you were my favorite singer. You were, you know, all the songs were all his. I said. You look like, best you know, in glasses. Yeah, you know, and I said the blue eyes and the whole thing. And I said, and I was 13. What do you expect? You know, I said, and you were married. So let me not get there. You know? But yeah. um, it was one of those things that uh, you do and it's. He was still, he was still a little upset that I didn't say him first. That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, Ringo was always the wrong answer in our house when I was asked that question too. <laughs> Everybody loves Ringo. Oh, true. And he, he had a birthday recently. Can you believe he's 81? Wow. He looks great though. He, he is great. great. He is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the answer to my, I'm going to take a crack at the first one. When did you first feel famous? Mm -hmm. Um, It was in 1988. I was 28 years old and I stepped off the plane in Moscow, Russia. And there were literally hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand people in the arrival lounge um, waiting to greet me, stepping off the plane to come and do a tour of what was then the Soviet Union. I had great promotion and great PR and a team in Russia that I had accidentally met when I was living in Munich. I shot a video. I sent it to my handlers at the Kremlin who sent it to their one and only TV station, Radio. They had 13 time zones and one TV station and 280 million people. And they put me on air seven or eight times a day for six weeks. So instant fame, just add television. Yeah. And um, I went there to do a bunch of tour dates and there was thousands of screaming fans everywhere I went. And I'm like, Oh, this is what it feels like. Cool. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. neat. You know, one of the things, so that's the Me Too movement, it, it was, it was huge. And I was speaking to somebody over the weekend 
who told me he's a he's a, a talent agent. He's a big talent agent, and he said that the Me Too movement really has changed the entire film industry. Mm-hmm. And um, I know in the music industry that it's a lot different from when I toured too. I'm told there's a lot of women now where it wasn't that way when I worked. Uh, there wasn't a lot of female roadies. Uh, there was definitely not when I was there. Yeah. So from the time that you were be- in beginnings in the music industry, um, did you find that, that it was really hard for women? I mean, you're tough as nails. I can tell both of you. Um, but was it was it troubling sometimes to be a woman around all these guys? You know, it wasn't so much. Yes, yes and no, because it wasn't so much the the rock and rollers I met. You know, it wasn't them. They were very nice to me, but it was all the people behind the scenes. The suits. And I saw the casting couch. I saw a lot of that. I remember having a conversation with somebody. They said, um, this guy said, because um, I came in at a point where it was the old guard and the new guard was just coming in. You know, it's like uh, you're having the the older, um, I don't know, the older producers, like the Morris Levies of the world. Then you're talking about the newer, you know, the Russ Titleman. So, but the older guards, it was just that you started seeing them and they said, one of them said to me, everybody has a price. Hmm. And I, and I, and I got shocked. And I said, no, no, I, I don't, there's no price. They said, oh, there'll be a price. And I said, no, there won't. And I kept true to my word on that one. But it was like, he was going to try and break me. And I was like, oh, hold freaky. on. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't, I, um, in later years, I saw him and he never brought that up. He was always nice to me after that. I stayed true to that whole thing. But I did see a lot of that nonsense going on and it was hard for women and you know what the problem is a lot of people don't understand back then which i do understand about you cross one of them if they're very powerful you weren't going to work again yeah doesn't matter you weren't going to work again so when people said why didn't you say something it wasn't it was going to fall on deaf ears so i saw a lot of that and uh it was very sad to see and um and you know thank god that it's a new timing, you know, it's new that you can say something now. No one's going to say, oh, we don't believe you. Although there's some places that still do, but now you have a little bit more support where you didn't have any before, none whatsoever. Right. I was 23 living in Hollywood, um, you know, legs for days. And these were a lot less close to the floor than they are now. And um, I had a, well, gravity gets all of us in the end, you know, and um, I think you look spectacular. Oh, thank you, darling. Um, I'll meet you in the the closet later. Um, we will. We'll have some McCarthy tea. We'll have McCartney some McCarthy tea. McCartney tea. tea. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I had a a meeting. I was trying to get a record deal, and I had a meeting set with a certain uh, head of a label who shall remain nameless. Um, short English guy, curly hair, horn rim glasses. You know who you are. Uh, <laughs> And it got moved from 11 o'clock on a Tuesday to 2 o'clock on a Wednesday to 5 o'clock on a Friday night. So I go to the building and I go and I'm all dressed up and I have my little cassette box and everything. And um, all I hear is, good night, good night, good night. The door's slamming. So now I'm alone in this huge building on Sunset and Coinga with this person. 
and um, who was also British, he said, oh, darling, everybody's gone home. Shall we have a glass of champagne to toast the weekend? And I said, sure, absolutely. But if you're trying to get me drunk and do anything weird, I am from Liverpool, and it starts with liver, so I hope you have a case of champagne if you're going to try that <laughs> yeah. out, right? Yeah. So we knocked, down a bottle. we knocked down a bottle, and I have to go, you know, to the little girl's room and powder my nose. And I come back, and this guy is lying on the Persian rug in his office wearing nothing but brown shoes, navy blue socks, and said horn-rimmed glasses. And he was, shall we just say, very busy. Sounds sexy as all hell, doesn't it? Sexy as hell. (laughs) And so I look down, and I step over him, and I grab my keys and my briefcase and my – and he said, where are you going? Where are you going? I said, well, a couple of things before I go, darling. Um, The brown shoes, the blue socks, not a good look. Fashion faux pas. And wow, is that like, that's just like a penis, only smaller. And so I left the building, went straight to Ladone, told everyone who would listen and his name and one person in here that was on his label. And of course, I never got a record deal up or down Sunset Strip, but I wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to be forced into. And every time I ran into this guy at the Grammys or, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, RAAA awards or BMI dinners or whatever, he would just turn around and scuttle and run the other way. Cause he knew I just told everyone in town. I didn't, I didn't care. I was, this was me too. And it was 1983. I wasn't going to keep my flap shut. I don't care. Yeah. So, you know, it was difficult because I knew there was a price to pay and I had to go all the way to Germany to get a record deal with BMG because I was blackballed in town for being lippy and uh, not, you know, cooperative, shall we say. But, um, no, I thought the best part of it, never mind the penis joke, I thought the best part was criticizing his shoes and socks color combination. <laughs> see, that's what happens. Yeah. You see, there that's you what go. happens when you try to get fresh with the fashion police. Yeah. So is mom still making tea? She is. She's uh, brewing Mrs. McCartney's tea. She has strawberry fields and Maharishi uh, mop top maple and Maharishi peach and Penny Lane Peppermint, and it's all good stuff. And 10% of it goes to the Linda McCartney Breast Cancer Research Fund at our charity in Liverpool. I thought we should end on a good note. I love my Absolutely. tea. I love tea. Yes, I, have, I, have, I actually made a peach tea, and it's, it's iced in here. So I, have a, nice. I brew my Mrs. McCartney's and then throw some ice in it. I might have to throw some vodka in it. But it's, oh, it's that Absolutely. It's that damn good. Indeed. Well, well this has been a pleasure. Both. Thank you so yeah, much. It's been really you know, nice to talk to both of you. They can visit my site also for my jewelry because I make feng shui jewelry as well. That's you know, right. I read about that. I was going to ask, so would you think about doing a book that wasn't uh, about music, May? Because you've written three books? It's actually really only, technically, it's uh, it's three books, but it's really two books. Um, yeah, I could. I would do something like that. I mean, there's a lot of different things that I have, you know, that yeah, you're eclectic. Like, like I, I did see your jewelry. It was, it's neat. So yeah. I my jewelry because my mother used to talk about, you know, you go somewhere and she go, it's don't do that. It's not good feng shui. And people used to laugh at me and go, what is that? And then of course people now would say, Oh, it's very popular. Oh, it's kind of, yeah. It's popular now. I said, yeah, but I was doing it when I was a child. My mother would say, don't do that. It's not good. You know, and that's okay. Mom. So, well, and yeah. then you have hot sauce cause you're a hot chick. Oh yeah, I've got my hot sauce, and I got you. Know, I have a hot thing. sauce company. Do yeah. you really? Yeah, I got to revamp my website. So left out. <laughs> I don't I like hot, hot sauce, sauce. Though. I don't like spicy stuff, so that was always the big joke. But 
you know, I was a young guy. I'm going out and uh, we're going to all the parties, the Hollywood parties. And I just was so sick of talking about film or music stuff. So I would just change the subject to hot sauce all the time. And I, and I, I just pitched my hot sauce website. And so uh, hollywoodsauce.com. And then uh, it was fun. So everybody was still old friends. You still have the hot sauce site? And I'm like, yes, I do. So I don't really make any money out of it, but it's great oh. fun. I like all the stupid names and all of that. I've enjoyed it. You guys should swap sauce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to do it. There's a few guys in the who have a, their hot sauces in the in the music industry. So, so wild. Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole lot of things, you know, that goes on. It's because we've done it. You know, it's not that we've we've done it all, but we've it's experimenting. I love. Uh, that's why I was going into photography. That's why I'm going into jewelry. The only reason that that whole jewelry thing came out of that feng shui is because. I wanted to go look for something. And when I went to look for it, there was nothing out there that was suitable. That was just not, that didn't look like trash. So I said, yeah. yes, I'm going to have to make something. Nice. Yeah. Well, and now you're, now you're in the digital collectible business. And if anybody, any of our lovely viewers today yes. want to uh, check it all out, it is at maypanggallery.com. Hey, thanks for watching Party Like a Rockstar. If you're not already subscribed to the Facebook or YouTube channels, do it. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The handle is Party of Stars. Thanks for watching. You'll see you next time.